our show. My name is Six Lop and you're listening to episode number four of the Uberleaf Hacker Force radio program. This is kind of a special episode because I'm doing it more or less live. I mean, you're listening to it um, kind of post-production, right? But there is no real production. There is no editing. It's uh, I kind of don't like editing, especially when it comes to radio programs. Um, so, on OpenBSD, uh, typically what's used for sound is a library called Libsound.io. And what Libsound.io does, aside from dumping sound directly to a device, it also can dump sound to a socket. And this socket is being listened to by listened to by a uh, user space program called AUCAT. And AUCAT mixes the streams that comes uh, comes into the socket and dumps them to the sound device, or it does the reverse way around if you have a full duplex sound device um, at the same time, which is very nice. Uh, so this, this radio program is kind of like a speaker cast. The music you are hearing is being played in M player, and uh, I'm talking on a radio receiver. <laughs> so there you go. Um, this episode, we're going to be talking to Cobra 2, and uh, we are also going to be talking to the command line of the command line podcast, and we're going to be releasing a couple of things. Um, but before any of this, our standard poem. This one is called Ode to My Computer. And if you have any poem that you'd like, send it in. <laughs> so I don't have to write a poem every episode, but this is, uh, this is our standard poem. When I think of the sheer amount of work needed to put together modern poem slash essay, all right? Alright, when I think of the sheer amount of work needed to put together a modern operating system, it makes me never bored by my computer. My fingertips rest on a machine containing years and years, combined lifetimes, of hard work. When I think of all the work and its source code on my hard drive and the fact that I have complete access to it, I'm just amazed. Many times I've spent my day saying things to myself like, hmm, I wonder how malloc works, and actually being able to find out. As I look over the codes, the code line by line, it kind of reminds me of stones in an Egyptian pyramid or something. I imagine the sweat that's gone into each one. I imagine the debugging nightmare to get it actually working. It's pretty awesome when you think about it. Great engineering efforts have always fascinated me. 
thinking about the sums of people's work, I've always found very exciting. Now, the uh, first thing we're going to release is a program called Yes Please. What Yes Please is, yes, please is, is a command line program um, that takes a screenshot of your computer and uploads it to a screenshot aggregator called unixporn.com. Uh, now to explain what that is, I'm going to be talking with Cobra2, the maintainer of unixporn.com, briefly here. I recorded this interview about a week ago, uh, doing my same sort of hack to AUCAT to dump out to a WAV file. <laughs> And uh, the receiver I was using at the time was a payphone receiver, and it sounded absolutely horrible. It sounded way pinched. Um, so, you know, I wonder, I wonder how much the sound quality is degraded in payphones simply because of the receiver. Um, but anyway, I blame it perhaps on the impotence of the microphone in the receiver versus what uh, kind of microphone my computer wanted or something like that. It just sounded terrible. Uh, but, but when I talked to Cobra 2, it came out pretty well. So, let me play that. So, let's uh, stop the music there. Kind of feel like this is the phone show or something with the music stopping like that. And give Cobra a call. I believe this is his phone number. See if we don't wake him up. Of their just 
average, everyday uh, Unix slash Linux setup. And I say Unix slash Linux because there's screenshots of Solaris, um, various BSDs, and Linux environments posted up there. Um, it's, it's basically, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a niche community of where people can just go to kill a little bit of time and see everything that's out there and see how just every individual user customizes the desktop to their own personal preference and just basically explores the flexibility of open source. Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of fun to be honest with you. At least I think it is to to see what other people see what other people are up to. Um, now you're the you're the maintainer of this this site. I take it how long of uh how long has it been around? Because I've been I was made aware of it through uh, I think uh, Tit Radio actually to be honest with you. <laughs> but how long has this been around? Uh well, Flatu started up Unicorn back in the uh, the. I'm going to say roughly the third and fourth quarter of 2008, and I got on board at the end of uh, 2008, somewhere around December, and um, just kind of got involved and asked if I needed any help, and because um, we were getting a lot of spam attacks on Unicorn. I mean, we were having hundreds of thousands of spam comments posted on everyone's post every day, and they they weren't getting deleted. And I, I asked Clyde if he needed uh, some help getting rid of that, and he just made me an admin, and I've stuck with it ever since. Mm, so you're still deleting a lot of spam, I take it? Um... Not so much. I, I, I changed some configurations and mucked around with a couple of settings and uh, drastically reduced the amount of spam that we uh, we had, but unfortunately that cut out the uh, the ability of anonymous uh, comments, like just anyone visiting the, the website couldn't just go, hey, I really like this setup. Um, can you send me your config files? You know, send me an email here, uh, yeah. that sort of thing, uh, which which was really kind of a bummer because not everybody wants to go through the hassle of registering an account with yet another website. Yeah, but, uh, but uh, in the end, it seems like out. the best solution. Oh, oh, no, 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 no. I was just saying it seems like the best solution, but uh, but you go ahead and say what you're going to say. Yeah, in the end, it, it, it works out fairly well. Uh, now we have hardly any spam. Uh, the only spam that we do have are from those really, really nice people who actually go through the entire registration process and not just a bot. So the persistent spammers, in other words. No, 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 I'm, I'm kidding. It's been pretty good. I haven't even, like, I wasn't even aware that there was any spam at all. Um, I have not been exposed to it on, on Unix Barn, to be honest with you. So, guys are doing a good job at keeping the spammers. I'm 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 kind of on top of the uh, the user registration and the, the kind of spam that pops up anytime uh, a new user is registered to the website. I, I get a lovely email that says, "Hey, so, so registered to the website, 
and I'll give them about 30 minutes, and then I'll go run behind and check and make sure they're not an actual spammer. If they are, I take care of it. All right, cool beans. Now I've got the, the, the wonderful ability to SSH into my machine from anywhere, so I can just take care of it. All right, well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for letting us know what Unix porn is. Anytime. And uh, I hope you um, enjoy the party. Um, thank you very much. I'll, I'll do my best. Yeah, don't do anything I want to do. I don't know what that means. <laughs> so, uh, I'm going to be a good boy. Uh, <laughs> I'm getting married very soon. Oh, really? So, I need to keep... Yes, ma'am. Wow, cool beans. Um, when are you getting married? Oh my goodness, so that's coming right up. That's real soon. Yes, it is. I'm looking forward to it. Cool, cool beans. Congratulations. Thank you. Alright, you take care, Cobra, too. Pardon? Oh, you take care, Cobra, too. You too, Miss Big Pup. Don't have too much fun tonight. <laughs> oh, I'll definitely not. So, <laughs> all right, bye bye. Bye bye. Uh, so this program again is a command line program called Yes Please. Uh, spelled W E S P L Z. You can download this at the Uberlead Hacker Force main site, which is in the show notes, of course. And, well, I might as well tell you what it is, too, uh, in case you don't get this in show notes. It's uh, Uberlead Hacker Force, all one word, um, dot deepgeek.us. And, uh, again, what this is, is a command line program. You type it in, and you specify arguments, uh, title, album name, um, any tags that you want, uh, anything like that, uh, delay before taking a screenshot. Or anything of that nature. It also reads a configuration file for um, for commonly used arguments um, for username and, and, and whatnot. And uh, then it uploads it to Unix Porn. It's fairly straightforward. And uh, if um, you have any problems with it, feel free to email me. And uh, if you can't get it working on your system for whatever reason, I will do my best to get it working on your system. Even if that involves you setting up an account in me. Uh, secure shelling into your system to get it to work, <laughs> which is kind of fun. I did that on Cobra system. It's it's a pretty underutilized aspect of uh, a lot of U Linux distributions uh, or Unix distribu distributions generally. Is uh, you know you have multi users and you have users account user accounts, but no one ever really uses more than two two users. It seems uh, root and then their unprivileged user. Now, the uh, second uh, release is a, um, well, this is a pre-release, actually. It's it's not software, it's actually a bit of hardware. It's a, a little device with uh, six buttons. You plug in your computer um, through your, your USB port. It looks like a USB keyboard to your computer. And uh, what this device does is it generates, stores, and types your passwords for you, in addition to usernames. It's a uh, kind of a quick interface. It's sort of a corded sort of interface where you uh, you 
don't need to traverse any sort of menu or anything like that to uh, to use it. So you can just hold down some buttons and I'll type out a username, or hold down some other buttons and I'll type out a password. Um, now the manual to this you can find uh, at the Uberlead Hackforce main site. You can also find a video of the prototype. Um, this isn't something that I will be producing probably for another couple of months. Um, I have to <laughs> order a couple of controllers and uh, start making art for the for the uh, for the manufactured board, and uh, and then start to to manufacture them. Uh, but if you want to pre-order and help me out, you certainly may. There's also a pre-order order form there, and uh, hopefully this passy pass will be in your hands. And maybe you can attach it to your keychain or something like that. And tell me all about it and any suggestions that you have or anything like that. The random number generator uh, inside of it is a pseudo-random number generator that uh, itself isn't terribly complex or probably cryptographically uh, secure. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty good pseudo-random number generator, I suppose, for passwords. The thing, though, is it's uh, seeded by... Uh, our, it's, it has a little salt to it uh, from the seed uh, from uh, uh, timing delays between key presses. Um, so that's probably not too susceptible to birthday attacks uh, given that, but then I'm no crypto analysis, so I can't attest to the, the, the actual strength of the algorithm, but you'll probably have no problems with it. We can always replace the, the, uh, the algorithm if you want. Your passwords are stored in uh, electronically erasable programmable read-only memory on the chip. That's EEPROM. And, uh, well, I hope to get this this uh, this little device out there, because it's something that I need, and it's probably something that you need too. Now, the next thing we're going to do on this episode of Uberlead Hacker Force Radio is talk to our friend Command Line. This is a pre-recorded interview of sorts. It's not really an interview. You probably know a lot about him just from his podcast, so I thought there wasn't a real need to for me to interview him or anything like that. It's more of a discussion on uh, parallel computers, multi-threaded operating systems, and computers as well, programming models, and, and whatnot. And uh, quite the knowledgeable guy. Uh, it was kind of interesting talking to him. Like, I, w I would say a couple things, and then he would go on for a while, then I'd say a couple of things, and he'd go on for a while. It's very an easy interview, <laughs> more or less. Um, that's not to belittle either of us by any means, of course. Uh, but before we get into that interview, I'm going to play a bit of music for a musical break, and I won't be returning. Uh, so thank you for listening to this episode, and I will see you next time.
Line, how's it going? Good. How many, um, the computer you have right now, the, the computer that, uh, you would consider maybe your best computer, how many cores does this have? It has eight. It has eight. Um, when, when did you first buy a multi-core, uh, machine? When did you first think of this? When did you, uh, realize that, uh, did you have, um, was it exciting for you to realize that uh, it's become common for processors to have multi-cores? Or, or uh, when did you first uh, do anything with parallel computers, uh, more generally? I, I, it's always fascinated me. I, I remember uh, when I was younger, fresh out of college, um, falling in with a, a bunch of uh, network engineers at my first job that were really into scratch building their own PCs. And that seemed to, at that time, was kind of like the holy grail to get like a, uh, I want to say it was the, the tie-in Tomcat motherboard that had uh, two sockets and could do, you know, in a, in a standard uh, footprint, could do SMP, could drop two CPUs in it. So it was always kind of the, you know, if I had, if I could get enough cash together, if I could find, uh, you know, an operating system that would support it or, or you know, the right drivers or whatnot, uh, I, I really wanted to do that. It, it just seemed to make sense to me at that time that, that uh, you know, if the OS could uh, saturate one processor, that that would leave another free to do whatever. You know, at that time, it was probably like Quake 2, Quake 3, uh, you know, really, really kind of graphic-intensive gaming. I had uh, around that same time, I also remember playing around with uh, not not uh, multi-core on, on the main bus, but with the SLI uh, 3D graphics of the old... Uh, monster uh, cards that you could actually uh, pair together. And I had a pair of those, and some people had uh, higher-end uh, graphics cards when we were doing LAN parties. But I remember being very proud of the fact that because I had two of those uh, cross-connected, and so each essentially was rendering every other pixel line in, in each frame of the game we were playing, that I was actually getting 
much better frame rates and a much smoother gaming experience. Uh, and then, you know, I kind of, uh, as uh, life goes, things got busier, the jobs got more demanding, started family, kind of fell out of building my own systems. So I think it was when the, uh, the first uh, SMP uh, PowerPC G5, the first Macs that had multiple processors in them, that that, that started looking very attractive, for, for again, for very much the same reasons. And, it, and you know, it doesn't hurt. Uh, you know, I will, I will admit to at least being partially a Mac fanboy. I have... Uh, Increasingly more cause for criticism, but but there's still uh, a little bit of softness in my heart towards uh, their their industrial design and, and some of their decisions. But the that line of processors, so I, I still have the uh, the the Power Mac G5 uh, that was my uh, studio rig up until about a year and a half ago, and then that got replaced with the eight core, which is a Mac Pro. So it's the uh, two uh, quad core processors. So it's multi core. And SMT, so it's uh, uh, kind of the best of both. So yeah, it's, it's definitely something that, that that gets me excited in terms of, uh, especially as I've gotten more into audio, realizing the benefit of being able to uh, again do a lot more, have a lot more processing power to bounce down audio, but still be able to uh, pursue other tasks. So I put out for my podcast, I'm putting out multiple formats. So having that many cores means that I can be mixing down. Uh, audio and I can be transcoding at the same time and, and it runs as smooth as if I'm just doing one or the other. Uh, there's no difference if I'm running them at the same time. And that's, that's really appealing for, uh, saving time, you know, because I want to focus much more in, in that instance where I'm, I'm taking full advantage of having all of that parallel power. I want to take advantage of that by maximizing the time I'm spending, uh, writing up an episode or, or doing the, the work that's not as easy on the I've had uh, single core machines for quite some time. In fact, I still do have single core machines. Uh, so it's it's kind of um, it's kind of uh, an exotic sort of treat to be on any sort of system with a uh, with multi cores. And my first experience of this um, was kind of similar to yours, I, I suppose. Uh, I had a couple of uh, Voodoo Two cards which you could hook up together, and uh, it seemed like a fairly straightforward task to render every other scan line or uh, or have some sort of um, easy sort of division of computation uh, for these two cards. Um, I don't know. Like, I haven't really experienced uh, doing any audio editing or anything like that with a multi-core machine. You say that this is, is fairly transparent. Uh, out of curiosity, what operating system are you are you running this on when you when you do your audio stuff? Uh, for for doing audio production work, I'm I'm running OS X on the Mac Pro. I've I have also uh, had this same system configured for uh, a Linux because for the day job I do uh, some fairly heavy lifting web development, and in that instance I, I also find uh, in both operating systems I actually find the experience very seamless. I do uh, uh, I do more of the lower level platform work for the applications at, at the day job, which means that. Uh, we deploy in a clustered environment. Uh, so this is, uh, uh, again, kind of a, another variation on, on parallel processing, but it spreads that parallelism across uh, multiple actual servers um, to, to, to get uh, uh, more scalability in, in servicing requests because we also want to replicate uh, the, the networking hardware. Uh, we don't want to be bounded but necessarily by a, a shared memory bus, that kind of thing. And, and having the ability also in, in a clustered environment, something you can't do with... Uh, a multi-core system or an SMP system is you can't crack the box while it's running 
and add additional processors in. Whereas a cluster, while it's not directly comparable, except maybe conceptually, uh, you can just spin up a new node in the cluster and, and get more throughput that way, more processing power that way. So uh, to do development work and make sure that some of the things that I'm doing that actually uh, are affected by being deployed in that sort of an environment kind of load balancer where requests might get ping-ponged back and forth and there's sharing in the database and there, there's other means of sharing uh, calls and information between nodes in the cluster. I do a lot of virtualization, uh, uh, and that I do all on Linux, and uh, that's also fairly seamless. Um, right now I'm using VirtualBox, which is, uh, I guess, Oracle owns it now. Some picked it up a while ago, which is just a desktop system uh, for virtualization, but I've been looking at uh, Zen or, or KVM with some serious interest because it would seem to me that that, tying in more closely to the, the timing loop of the, the host OS, uh, the event loop, the timing loop, that that would be even more efficient. And, and again, um, like with the audio production work, uh, there's nothing you need to do special to take advantage of that. There might be some, some tweaking you can do to peg, uh, you know, a particular hypervisor to a particular CPU. But so far, I, I haven't found the need for that. The, the OSs that are um, multi-core aware, so... Uh, 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 an SMP-capable Linux kernel or, or OS 10 being coupled very closely with the hardware design just seems to make that, uh, as you say, very transparent, very easy to just uh, run the apps that I want to run and know that I'm getting uh, the, the full horsepower out of out of the hardware that I'm using. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that um, uh, we have uh, sort of in processing power, uh, We there's no, Moore's Law is, is dead and, and it's not, probably a very natural thing for us to expect any sort of exponential scale with anything. But um, what strikes me as unusual is is putting multi-cores on a single die. Um, now, do you know, out of curiosity, um, do you know if this is using the same memory bus, or is it, is it using uh, maybe multiple buses connected to some sort of memory controller? Um, and are these memories redundant in any way? Do you have, uh, like, a couple of pairs where we have two bytes, two bits per byte, or per bit, rather, or something like that? Um, it seems like we're not working around uh, the bottleneck of memory, and uh, processor speeds has increased so much but memory essentially has stayed the same, and it's, it strikes me as weird that uh, it doesn't seem like we're working around this. Do you know if we are working around this? I, I think your 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 characterization on the same die, I think that's correct. Uh, there there may be uh, some division on the memory bus, but I think by and large that that's still very much a limiter than on a uh, a four core or even an eight core die that it's. Uh, I mean, they have their own uh, cache I, I, line, right? So there's some separation there, but. Uh, um. Yeah, yeah, but but the from from there on out, yeah, I I think you're right. I think you're 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 running the risk of running into contention. But I, I do know that the uh, when you get past that, so like the Mac Pro, it's at that uh, on a single die. That's true. But when you get to uh, the eight core, they're not doing that eight cores on a single die. It's two CPUs still, like the old uh, uh, PowerPC G5s were. And I think at that point, there's a, there's a separate bus going into each set of cores. So it's it's not, it, it seems like a bit of a compromise. And that might inform why at least Apple and, and their designs is still using SMP while other people aren't, is that they're maybe able to uh, get a, a bit more uh, memory performance to work around around those limitations that you're, you're talking about. 
now, what sort of uh, multi-threading programming do you do in your in your daily life? Uh, as little as possible. Uh, to be <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, me too. I, I had a I had a coworker who once said, uh, and and I think this is actually not a bad way. To, he said it, you know, kind of tongue in cheek, but it, if you unpack it a little bit. This is actually not a bad way to think about it. He said, if you're actually, if you're thinking about threads, if you're spawning a thread, you've done something wrong. That, yeah. and, it, you know, I mean, it, that runs up against, I think, the, what, what, what we're talking about, that, uh, it's gonna get inescapable. That, that at some point, you know, there's gonna be a tipping point where people have to know some way of getting at that concurrency. But, but right now, uh, threading is, in my experience, very difficult to get right. Yeah, it introduces uh, I, I an to, entirely new type of bug that I don't think a lot of people have experience uh, with, uh, sort of the yeah. race condition sort of bug that uh, is very hard to debug. And uh, I don't know. And even even uh, an indirect deadlock can be difficult to suss out sometimes. Yeah. Uh, how you get to that. But yeah, the race conditions are, are almost, uh, they seem to defy determinism, you know. And I think that's what makes them so hard to pin down is it's not like you can sit down except in the most trivial cases and, and kind of work through from first principles how you're going to get to. You know, it, it seems like you're you're reliant on, on much more sort of empiricism that you're running iteration after iteration after, after iteration as a pattern starts to emerge or you're leveraging some sort of intuition about, well, I think this is what these threads are are, are getting in contention for. I think this is how this race condition is arriving. And, and I, I work, uh, to get back to your question, I work with... Uh, 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 Java, I know, I know. There's a lot of, a lot of critics of that. That's, that's, for my day job, that's what I do. And, uh, I, I've been exposed more, I think, than the typical Java developer to the, the threading facilities in that language, which, uh, you know, they vary. It's abstracted away, so on, on Linux, it may map directly to, uh, P threads, and on other systems, it may map to other, to lightweight processes or other ways of doing, uh, that at the OS level. Uh, but that doesn't, that doesn't, that being said, even though it's a very high level language in that sense, even though there's some, uh, there's especially with the later versions of the, the language and the platform, there's some really, really nice, uh, work out of Oswego, uh, that Doug Lee did to try to enhance some of the threading primitives to get us semaphores and cyclic barriers and some other ways to kind of get at concurrency other than, uh, just threads and locks. Uh, so dealing with, uh, uh, atomic values, uh, something that actually is very similar to what, uh, uh, Grand Central is doing with OS 10 technology that they've open sourced as, uh, Live Dispatch, which is, uh, a way of just kind of queuing work into, uh, threads that are, are more closely associated to the hardware in that instance. There are, are oh, comparable really? facilities. Yeah, yeah, there's comparable facilities in Java for that, uh, with the, uh, 1.5 version of the, the, the development kit, the 5.0 version of the language and forward. Uh, there's something very, very similar to that. That, that makes it somewhat simpler, but you, you have to have this adjustment about how you're thinking. In that instance, you're not thinking about, I think it's more like the, the really big scale sort of parallelism that you get when you, when you think about what Google's doing, what Doug Cutting's kind of replicated and Hadoop, the, uh, sort of map reduce where you're just, uh, thinking about things as, uh, orthogonal tasks that you can fire into a queue, you can submit into a scheduler, and then you're doing some coordination on the other side of that. And that, that seems to alleviate some of those race conditions, but that still seems like a very uh, awkward sort of idiom to get used to. You know, it's, it's very different than what we're used to thinking of with even uh, the simplest threading scenarios. It's kind of, I don't know if you have any experience with the uh, vector instructions, but uh, there are a lot of um, 
of vector instructions for like a, uh, MMX, for instance, or, or, or these things. And I've, I've come across two occasions where I had the, the pleasure of actually using them. <laughs> if that makes sense. Like, uh, it's, it's a very orthogonal in, it's, you have, uh, these, this data that gets processed, um, um, symmetrically. And this data has no interaction with other bits of data. Uh, you have like, uh, four integers, for instance, that get multiplied. Um, which is very nice if you're doing like multimedia sort of things. But in practice, I have pretty much practically have never used this. And, uh, it's, we, it seems like we, um, to make use of the, the hardware, we have to, uh, change a lot of the, methods that we use and the techniques that we use um kind of at a more fundamental level than i think we realize i think a lot of times people um i think a lot of people want to develop a new language to fix things and uh and perhaps in the future there'll be this nice language that can do a lot of data flow analysis and, and figure out the the perfect way to parallelize something but um until then well, i'm sorry there's, there's some there's some incremental steps along the way. Uh, I, I did a little bit of work with SIMD with, uh, um, yeah, MMX, SSE2, SSE3. Uh, when I worked for an R&D startup that did some uh, video compression stuff. Yeah. And we were doing some pretty heavy lifting matrix math stuff that, uh, I, to, to, at this point, you know, my, my math going into that was, wasn't very strong and was kind of stretched to the utmost. Uh, so I'm, st- I'm, I'm a little sketchy. That was years ago. But even then, we, you know, we got, uh, rather than kind of dig into how to, how to make use of that, we, we looked into compilers that could do some of that optimization work for us that, that, uh, uh, you know, we would do a little bit, uh, to concede to using those, uh, those instructions. But, but, but you're right, you know, SIMD is like, you know, kind of one small step along the way that's, uh, uh, more like, uh, you know, it's leveraging, uh, a single instruction across multiple registers. I mean, but, but, in, in simplest terms, and, and if you can break it up, as you say, so that uh, all of the inputs are kind of orthogonal, and, and you're doing something like matrix math, you know, you're, you're processing arrays of data, that, that makes sense, but uh, I, I found that to be true. It's, it's kind of like, okay, now what else am I doing that actually fits into that model? And then we didn't even get into, I don't think we even had any hardware capable of doing MIMD, doing uh, multiple instructions on uh, multiple data. And, um, and that, that I, I would say that... Further. Yeah. I would, I don't know, like, I, I would almost say that GPUs are, you can sort of consider this a, a MIMD type of architecture. Um, I mean, granted, you have to set up a program, and uh, it gets loaded into some hardware, uh, and then gets run. Um, it's not very clean, but uh, you can have pretty much multiple data, multiple instructions. Uh, mind you, the communication that... Uh, is done between these programs is very very little. It's a pixel, a pixel value, say, and uh, and these things. But uh, you're saying that that we have not realized Mindy. Well, no, I you know that's a good example. Uh, I didn't think about that, and I, I think you're right. But but it it reinforces that you know outside of of certain domains, you know, where are we seeing? I mean, I, I guess that there are projects that that uh, I've seen uh, that I've written about that I've talked about where uh, people are finding, and they're usually 
they are the kinds of things that can be sort of pipeline, like uh, the um, some researchers, some some hackers that are working with uh, GPUs to uh, to speed up crypto breaks. Yeah. Uh, that, but but that also seems to be the kind of thing where you've got you know you're doing password recovery, you're trying to recover you know the inputs into uh, uh, you know factorization or or, or some PKI, you know, something that drives PKI, something like that, or, or even a symmetric algorithm. Uh, where you're just, you're using that more for the ability to kind of, uh, break off into smaller chunks and, and paralyze that, that then speed up the brute force essentially. Um, so it, it, those both I think just kind of drive home that point that we don't have maybe, as you're saying, kind of just the, the mental tooling to say, how can I recharacterize more general problems to take advantage of that? And then, and then I think you're right. That's sort of a piece when you get into uh, multi-core, which is just going to get worse. I mean, the GPU you could at least look at as well. You know, as long as we have GPUs that are driven more by gaming, then there's going to be a tighter marriage between uh, what GPUs do and how they're programmed. And and as a as a separate, very rich field, that's one thing. But I, I think you're onto something. You know, there's like uh, Doug Patterson and the Rant Project. I think out of Berkeley. Uh, are looking at with uh, FPGAs are simulating hundreds if not thousands of cores and saying, okay, you know, what happens then? You know, what happens to programming then? You know, how do we actually uh, build the tools? How do we even approach utilizing this in a way that, that's efficient and makes sense? So they're they're simulating thousands of cores. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that, they're, that each core is particularly fast because it's on it's on uh, uh, programmable hardware. Yeah. But, but they're, they're trying For simulation to purposes. Of, yeah, exactly, exactly. But they're, they're, they're trying to address that, that, that question that you framed, which is, uh, you know, how, how do we actually change how we think about programming so that we can get the most effect out of this? You know, how do we have to change compilers? How do we have to change programming languages? And, and I do think we're seeing a little bit of that trickling out. Uh, the, the biggest, difference in, in uh, Google's new language Go from some of the other languages out there is there seems to be that notion of concurrency kind of built in as uh, part of the language semantic. You have these uh, concurrent blocks in it. And that seems to be a concession towards being able to, you know, rather than thinking in terms of threads and, okay, I've got to feed work to a thread and what's the thread lifecycle and, and race conditions and uh, obtaining locks or semaphores or, you know, all these other ways of coordinating threads, uh, they're they're trying to I guess weave that more into the fabric of, of the language itself from day one, even more so than some of the other multi-thread capable languages that we've seen before. How much experience do you have with with Go? You said that uh, you made reference to some sort of block mechanism. Uh, what is this block mechanism? I have no experience with Go whatsoever. Um, uh, I just read through some of the some of the documentation when it released just to kind of get to the bottom of what the hype was because everybody was like, "Ooh, it's a new programming programming language from Google. It must be awesome." And it's like, well, maybe you know they they have this uh, immense brain trust, you know, that that Surf and uh, uh, Brian Kurgan and and uh, Josh Block and 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 so on and so on and so on. Um, and, and this is one that, that's come from some of the, uh, the computer scientists that they've, uh, that they've employed over the years. And in looking at it, it's just as simple as it's, it's a, uh, a language symbol, which is concurrent. So it's a modifier on, on a, on a functional block, basically. And so you're, you're telling the, the compiler that that's something that can be, uh, parallelized. 
And I, I haven't read it close enough to know what constraints there are on that block in terms of uh, input handling and, and return values and the like. But it, it seems to be uh, by uh, 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 a friend of mine sent me an article recently saying that the uh, the uptick on Go has been pretty good, that it's been solid. So the hype seems to at least been um, uh, somewhat justified. That, that people are really kind of digging in. They've had uh, a number of good releases over the past three or four months that it's been out. So I'm not, I don't claim to have huge familiarity, but just doing some preliminary reading of the materials that they put out there. They, uh, they, they put some good language documentation out there. They put some good sample code out there. So if you're curious, uh, it doesn't seem like it's too hard to dig in. And if you're, if you're comfortable in C, though, it doesn't seem too much different from that. It's not, it's not of the complexity of, of, you know, like the, the whole new raft of dynamic languages out there, Ruby and Python and so forth. It's not even, I would say, the complexity of like C++. Uh, it has interfaces, but it doesn't have the same kind of uh, opportunity to go kind of hog wild with typing like C++. And you don't, you don't really have generics. It's a, I think it's, it's, as they put it, I think in the documentations, it's more of a systems language like C. So it's intentionally simpler. You know, so you can really do much lower level programming. And, and that, I guess maybe that that's why the concurrency aspects of it makes sense, is that if you're building, uh, uh, presumably from what I've read, Google is using this to program servers, highly concurrent, highly scalable servers up on, uh, no doubt, uh, multi-core, multi-processor uh, server hardware. And uh, so having that available to, to make these you know highly scalable, uh, highly concurrent, highly parallel servers makes a hell of a lot of sense. That you know maybe they, they were that their internal brain trust was just frustrated with trying to do that with P threads, trying to do that with, with other things. You know, I know they use Python for a lot of uh, higher level programming. I couldn't see them building, you know, the next uh, Nginx or something like that, and something like Python. So it seems like that that was kind of their response to say, okay, we got to kind of go back to the drawing board and figure out how we can even build the systems, to build the applications to keep scaling and, and make sure that they're, you know, they're all about speed these days. So it makes sense. Yeah, and that's very, that's actually very exciting. Um, the idea of, uh, of, uh, an operating system of some sort being built, uh, upon a, th- um, a parallel aware language. Um, it seems, uh, the operating systems we have are very much not parallel aware at all. And, and everyone is sort of clamoring to, to properly implement these things with the OpenBSD. Uh, for instance, by default, um, we don't even use hardware threads. We just, uh, we just, uh, have a user space, uh, thread kernel, uh, going. I mean, you can use kernel threads if you want to, but this is not what's going on by default. The code isn't there yet. And, uh, it's, it's not as, um, it's not as solid as, uh, as everyone would like it to be. There are, Everyone seems to be using locks primarily in the open, in the BSD world, uh, to, to synchronize parallelization. Um, what do you think of, of, uh, architectures like, uh, like the, what is it, the P, the cell processor in these things? Uh, whew, that's a, that was a hell of a, a hell of an architecture. Um, I, I used to know a hell of a lot more about it. I actually met again at that uh, that R and D firm. We were looking at the cell processor with considerable interest, exactly for the reasons that uh, uh, IBM and their partners were kind of pushing it. That it had uh, a 
better distribution of, of some of the capabilities, better memory coordination built into the into the, the, uh, the single die. But it, it's been a while, so my, my recollection on, on some of the particulars are fuzzy. But it was, I, I, I was kind of disappointed to see that it didn't, it really kind of didn't go anywhere, you know, outside of, uh, it, there were a few notable applications, but it just didn't seem to get market traction. And I, I want to say that, yeah, some of that was just kind of the, uh, you know, they, they did launch it with some programming tools, but just uh, maybe not enough. Uh, to make it a, a, as approachable, but it 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 seemed in in some ways that memory serves kind of more GPU like in some regards that that you had ways to kind of do some of the coordination of data on the chip itself, which got us kind of excited in terms of you know you could you could at one point you could be doing operations across a matrix of data, uh, but then you could you could shuffle that data around fairly effectively. But uh, I, I don't know that we ever got past kind of the proposal stage of talking to, we went up to uh, the IBM campus in uh, Armouth, New York, and we're in front of uh, folks from Sony, Toshiba, and IBM. And there was kind of a, an interesting meeting in the minds, but we never actually got any uh, hardware back into the lab at that point to really kind of pursue it. So it seemed to have a lot of promise, but it, it, it really also seemed to kind of, I guess put it simply, to, to, to bring... Um, the, the issues around parallelism really to to a head that you know this was not uh, this was not a, a, a chip that you could undertake lightly you know I mean it, it was a, a very different animal I mean it's kind of interesting to see uh, you know some of the other uh, multi-core designs uh, and how they differ how they, they they've uh, taken a kind of a different route and not been as aggressive in uh, you know I mean it, it had what, eight or nine cores on it. Back in the day, and we, we still haven't quite caught up with that. But it, it had some other interesting hardware built into the die. Uh, it wasn't just uh, a multi-core processor, which was kind of interesting. There were some things that, that made the, the hairs on the back of my neck raise a little bit with uh, that kind of touched upon trusted computing that you could lock down uh, individual cells and and you could build a trusted pathway through the chip that I found a little. Uh, a little disturbing to be perfectly honest in terms of, you know, knowing who, who they were trying to pursue, the markets they were trying to pursue and who they were positioning that to, to, uh, uh, you know, try to say, uh, by implication, we can close out the analog hole, you know, we can, uh, you know, prevent people from really doing what they want to do. But, you know, I mean, that's, that's like anything. It's, uh, just because it's there doesn't mean that, that uh, everybody used it. But, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was an impressive piece of hardware. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna begin to close this. Um, I'm thinking of a of a a good way to close it. Um, are you aware of uh are you aware of uh what was it the there's this 1980 supercomputer that uh, was massively paralyzed. Um, it was a CMB five I think or something like that. Uh, by Thinking Machines, this company called Thinking Machines. Do you know anything that, of uh, this? Is that Danny Holtz's company? I don't know. I have the um, image of the machine pretty clear in my head. It's this, uh, it's this black sort of box that is separated into four boxes and they have a lot of red lights all over the place. It's, um, does that ring a bell at all? That sounds vaguely familiar. When you say thinking machines, that, uh, that sounds vaguely familiar. 
Um, and yeah, that is, I think that, yeah, that's Danny Hillis's company. But I'm more familiar with, I think, Hillis's work in, uh, in other areas. I think he was doing stuff with, um, AI. Minds was, uh, I think, uh, yeah, something he co-founded. So I'm not, not as familiar with the, the hardware you're talking about. I think I, I probably have read about it just in, in passing reference in uh, some of my reading on, on uh, machine intelligence. Uh, you... that, that sort of parallelism, that, that makes total sense for that application. You know, that's that's uh, a, a suspicion a lot of these guys have had for a long time is that our, our own wetware is massively parallel. So maybe if we build something that's parallel enough, in silicon, then we can start to, to reach uh, uh, a similar sort of a cognitive computational model to what goes on inside of our brain. Um, do you have any experience with any uh, hardware languages, uh, Verilog, for instance, or any of these things? No, not not firsthand. That uh, again, uh, the the R and D for my work for we we looked to uh, we were thinking about doing some implementation in silicon. Uh, but we were going to, uh, contract that out. Mm. So, so talking, talking with some folks that, that, that did, uh, I don't know if they did, uh, Verilog or, or, or some other design language, but, but in that space, that, that's what they were used to working for. It seemed like, um, it, it made a lot of sense in terms of they could get, uh, very much further into the process and keep kind of the fabbing costs down by being able to prove stuff out. With those sorts of languages, it seems to be a, a lot more fruitful than just uh, you know, maybe before those languages were as, uh, as developed. But I, I haven't done any myself. That, that's an area that uh, uh, I'm a little weak on. There, there has been a little bit of effort to um, to uh, try and port C programs, for instance, into Verilog and these description languages. Um, and uh, this essentially is doing the best job at figuring out what can be paralyzed uh, because the hardware description language is everything running at once because it's hardware. And uh, so the platform of having a bunch of gates in this gate array is uh, seems promising because it's one where we can have any sort of parallelization that we can realize, uh, we're not limited to figuring out how to um, to run things on two cores and use the their interconnect and how they access memory and and, and these things. Um, do you have any thoughts on on this idea at all? Yeah, there there are a couple of stories that I uh, uh, I remember reading a, a few years back that that kind of take that. Uh, maybe to its logical conclusion or, or maybe at least to its next logical step where, uh, that makes sense to me, the idea of, of bringing kind of, uh, uh, optimization theory to, uh, program the, the, uh, design language itself. Um, that, that, that seems very appealing, but it seemed like there were some researchers working on, on, uh, hardware kind of in the same vein of, a, uh, an FPGA, but, but even more so. Um, that could be reprogrammed on the fly in a similar fashion. But, but what, what's tickling my memory about that story is you saying, um, you know, an FPGA is pretty laborious to program, but actually uh, doing kind of a dynamic or meta-programming. So you're programming the program that actually alters the uh, uh, the gate array to do something different. And that was 
geez, that was that was several years ago though. I, that's I'd have to dig back into uh, into the website archives to dig that out. And that, that seems very very promising for the reasons that you mentioned in terms of you know rather than having to kind of brain through have an engineer brain through what made the most sense in silicon, actually having that sort of uh, cooperation, uh, building systems that could kind of augment and and self model. And, and get to maybe designs that we would not have occurred to on our own. Do you think there's a limit to how much we can paralyze? Is there a, will we see machines with thousands of processors, do you think? I, I, yeah, I, I, I suspect that there probably is a limit, but, um, I, I don't know that we've gotten anywhere near it as of yet. And, and I remain open to kind of a, uh, a, uh, uh, Korean paradigm shift where we maybe find uh, some other way. You know, like we, we kind of dance around that issue of, of is the is the limitation really the hardware or is the limitation in in the, the engineer's mind in terms of uh, how they design the hardware for parallelism, the programmer's mind in terms of how they take advantage of that. And I, I don't know. I think the uh, I think the jury's out on that, and and it, that's definitely one of the reasons why I, I find that question uh, so fascinating. And I'm always on the lookout for stories that kind of touch upon that. Like, uh, as much as it turned out to be a little bit of a disappointment because there wasn't much meat to the story, but uh, I think it was Dave Proberts at uh, Microsoft yeah. was kind of talking about, you know, we need to rethink parallelism, and, and there wasn't a lot of meat to what he was saying. But there, it, it at least reminded us there are people out there who are thinking that, that, you know, we need to be doing more. We need to be pushing this frontier more. And and I think that we're, we're more on that end of things, of, of more just trying to figure out what the space looks like before we can effectively talk about limits. And then uh, not to open, an, uh, open up another rabbit hole to disappear down into, but I think that there's also a lot of promise in uh, quantum computers, uh, which is a, 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 an astonishingly different kind of parallelism, uh, a very counterintuitive and odd sort of parallelism that uh, the best research isn't even 100% sure that this is going to pay off in terms of having a huge amount of value beyond classical computing. But it's possible that, you know, like, so we've had uh, clock speed along with transistor density driving Moore's Law. Now the clock speeds have kind of plateaued, and we're, we're still driving the transistor, transistor density in terms of how many cores we're putting on a die. And so Moore's Law is still being served. Um, maybe at the point where the next kind of transition with that is, uh, it'll be some other substrate, some other physical style of computing. So we're using, uh, spintronics, we're using, uh, qubits and, and quantum registers and, and things of that nature, which are, in terms of programming those, that, that's even, uh, I think that's even further out, uh, in terms of, you know, like there, there has been some research, uh, Peter Shore most notably, uh, has had some good intuitions about what he thinks is going to work in terms of just an algorithm, let alone uh, actual implementation. So I, I think there's there's a <laughs> I think there's a I guess a, the, the short version of that is I think there's a long road. If there's a limit, uh, I'm optimistic. I say it's, it's it's a long way out, and there there may be other other things that allow us to extend uh, that road even further out. Yeah, I, I would go so far as to say that we haven't quite um, we haven't quite. Uh, fully utilized the transistors that we have now, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, it seems like we're encountering the same problems over and over again, and our implementations of them uh, happen to consume more resources, and uh, the problems that we're doing aren't really fundamentally changing. 
in any way. And uh, so that being said, a new programming paradigm, a new hardware paradigm such as quantum computers, which, as you said, is very strange to, to program when you have sort of, um, ideally it could be an infinite sort of parallelism, but uh, um, practically it's, it's, it's almost not programming, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it seems like uh, I think we can make a lot more progress just in, in the realm of, uh, of uh, working on our algorithms and, uh, and doing more with what we have. I mean, I see kids today who, I mean, a Commodore 64 today you can get for like $5 at the Goodwill and think of the things that perhaps you had a different computer, but think of the things that you've done with this Commodore 64 when you're in a teenager. This is nothing to the teenagers now. Um, they could have a lot of sort of power for learning computers uh, in their hands for very, very cheap because the Commodore 64 is incredibly cheap. It's, uh, you can buy a burger for more than that. But, um, but that's being ignored, and it, it seems like, uh, I don't know, it seems like uh, we haven't fully utilized what our hardware is now. W would you, do you want me to expand on that, or do, would you agree, agree or disagree with this, or what are your thoughts on that? No, I, I, I definitely agree. Uh, I think that there's definitely uh, a, a lot of waste in the, the systems we're using that we're not. Uh, uh, I think you touched on something interesting there. So it's not just the, are, are we saturating the transistors available to us? Are we really tasking the hardware that we have, even the cheap hardware we have? But it seems like there might be, uh, and I struggle with this as a parent, a, a cognitive waste of how do you, how do you uh, really incent the generation that maybe is going to be the one that when they get into school, or they're they're hacking on their own projects, following their passions, are the ones who are going to crack uh, some of the challenges that we've talked about. We're going to find that new way of thinking, that new way of moving forward to really drive that parallelism to the point uh, from the programmer's perspective, where we are getting everything out of the uh, the silicon, and who knows what kind of crazy stuff's going to happen uh, on the other side of that. I think that that. Uh, you know, if, if if I've been implying that there's any sort of mirror-term limit, I don't I don't think it's hardware. Uh, I think it's it's in our approach, absolutely. And and the more we can do to kind of uh, get more minds on that. So if that's uh, if that's coming up the equivalent of a you know a thrift store, a five-dollar computer, or maybe something a little bit more modern, modern, or or that that five-dollar computer just as a way to get somebody interested, who then goes on to you know, two core, four core, sixteen core box, and and starts to to noodle around in the way that we were noodling around, or or the homebrew guys even back in the di day were, you know, the uh, MIT hackers before them were were bumming instructions, and that the homebrew guys, you know, exemplified by Waz, were finding ways to uh, do more with less and really push, push, push. So you know, I would agree from that perspective to see maybe we need those kinds of challenges again. Maybe we need to find a way to to get people interested in really pushing this hardware, this amazing hardware that we have, uh, to that limit and see where, where it actually is. I, I think you're right. I don't think we're anywhere near it. Uh, I, I think the, the embedded market, the, um, the, a lot of, we have a lot of these embedded machines and it seems like this has become more and more popular to have these, uh, smaller and smaller machines. And, uh, in the, in, in the context that you, you had just described, I, th I think that's very good. 
it seems like uh, we have a possibility to figure out how to accomplish something in limited hardware, uh, where we're not thinking uh, that our hardware will be unlimited, if that makes sense. Um, typically, these embedded machines, it seems to me, run a lot of operating systems like Linux or things like these, but... Uh, but it seems to be like an emerging market that uh, that uh, is beneficial to sort of restricted programming and uh, maximizing algorithmic efficiency in these things. What do you think about that? I, I think that that might be uh, that. You know, when you put it, when you suggest that, that, that actually makes me think about the, uh, the maker movement and a lot of the, the cool... Uh, you know, microcontroller programming people are doing, or yeah, or SBC-based uh, systems, whether it's robotics or uh, multimedia applications, and maybe that might be the form that that kind of programming takes. You're right. There's there's something to uh, creativity with constraint that seems to have that that weird sort of uh, counterintuition. If you have uh, uh, you know limited instruction cache, cache limited registers, you've got to strip down. Uh, Linux kernel, you've got some even less capable embedded operating system that it really challenges you to get creative in your solution. And then I, I guess the, the bridge on the other side of that, if, you, if you're looking at that as a, uh, an, an avenue to kind of uh, uh, incite the next mind, you know, the, the, the people that are going to be looking at some of the problems we've been talking about is just uh, how do you scale that? Because in my experience, like I work with a, a, a guy who is absolutely uh, amazing at embedded programming. Yeah. Uh, but he was, he was crap. You put him on a, on an actual desktop class system, and he was absolute crap. He, he just, he couldn't make that transition. And then he would make really bad assumptions because he was so used to that limited environment. So there, I think there is an inherent risk too. Hmm. So it's, it's, I think there's, there's gotta be something in kind of the native talent of the embedded programmers that lets them kind of go beyond that. So maybe it's a, a diversity of, of projects. And making sure that they're not just down at the uh, the local hacker space uh, playing around with these single board systems with Arduinos, but they're also doing some uh, uh, something else, you know, on on more capable systems, so they can kind of see those corollaries. If they can bring the experiences from each into the other, uh, maybe <laughs> kind of a, a Renaissance programmer, if you will. Well, thank you for coming on the line, uh, command sure. line. I appreciate it. Um, sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. So I guess I'll see you around, and I'll, I'll keep on listening to your podcast. It's very good. And uh, you take care. Thanks. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Hacker Public Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net. So head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.